mean, this is meant to be somewhat of a, a dialogue working session as well. Um, I have lots of material, um, but I'm happy to not go through all of it. It doesn't matter to me. I want to make sure that we get you, you answered and, and your questions answered. Welcome. My name is uh, Grace Taslar, and I serve as the missions director for Nurses Christian Fellowship. I came to that position having taught nursing for 12 years in Illinois and then went to the mission field to Uganda, East Africa. Um, back in 1985, that was before many of you were born. Uh, I'm realizing I'm getting old, and, and that's a problem. But uh, it was an interesting time to be in Uganda. The Civil War was still going on, and we had just discovered we had a major AIDS pandemic. And uh, so I was faced with two, a number of, of things to deal with, and, and God was faithful and, and, and taught me many things during that experience. I'll talk somewhat about that. And then um, he called me back home to work with the Luke Society, which was an organization located in Vicksburg, Mississippi, to sort of try to do what we had done in Uganda in terms of health programming in the United States, and so I spent nine years working with various programs and churches in the United States to develop lay health programs that promoted health and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then um, the director, the founding director of that program retired, and they moved the organization to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I was left with a decision about what to do, and Nurses Christian Fellowship had always been a part of my my nursing, I was involved as a student. I had been a faculty advisor. They had used me for continuing education programs, and they recruited me to serve as their missions director and help you all uh, figure out what God would have uh, for you in your nursing careers. So I'm, I'm delighted to be with you today, and um, I titled this program Things They Didn't Teach in Nursing School, Preparing for Missionary Nursing. So I'm going to try to touch on a number of things that I wish I had known before I began this journey, and hopefully that will prevent you from making some of the same errors. But there's no, there's no one way of, of doing missionary nursing, and so there are many varieties that happen. One of the things that I had wished I had known more about was cultures and worldview. I had no idea how ethnocentric and how... Um, my mind had been shaped by the way I had been raised um, and, and developed in my educational process. It, all of that contributes to um, who you are and the way you practice nursing, and I was not at all prepared for differences in that. So I'm going to spend some time talking about how, why that's important and, and why we need to look at that a little more closely before engaging overseas especially. But I think I would just say with this, too, that in the U.S., we've become such a culturally multi-ethnic society that I think anywhere you practice, that's relevant today, especially in the States, because you're getting people coming to the States from all over the world, and they all have a different worldview, and their culture is very vastly different from maybe the way you were raised. And so we have to acknowledge that there are these cultural differences. 
The second thing that I was not really taught well in was the area of spiritual care and, and what that looked like. And as a missionary, I'm very concerned about the spiritual lives of the people that I care for. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, I, w- I attended a fairly Christian nursing school, but basically I was told, you know, if there's a spiritual problem, call the chaplain, and that was the extent of the spiritual care that I was was given, or, you know, maybe if a baby had died and the person was Catholic, maybe you had to arrange for a baptism or something like that, but that was that was the extent of that. And I think there's a whole lot more that we as nurses can do in the area of spiritual care, so I want to talk a little bit about that. And the final area is how to teach. <laughs> so much of missionary nursing, and, and especially in the future, is going to involve education of some sort, either teaching lay people or teaching professionals or doing some teaching in Sunday schools or churches or whatever. And and the way we were taught is the way we tend to teach. <laughs> and may, that may not be the best methodology. I, I learned on the job about adult education methodology and the effectiveness of that, so I want to discuss that. And that's a whole lot of content to try to cover in just an hour, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll go be moving a little more quickly. Oh, I'll take that out. Um, I pulled up the wrong program. I wanted the short program, and I think I got the long program. So, Worldview... Um, is a culturally agreed-upon perception of reality. In other words, worldview bridges the gap between objective reality and a person's perception of it. And that's a definition that comes from Patty Lane that I kind of liked. What we do and how we practice is the big thing. That's the observable part of, of our behavior. Okay? So that's outside. But what we do... And what we practice is based on what we believe and what we value. So how we act and behave is really a reflection of our beliefs and values. And our beliefs and values is really centered in how, what our world view is. Um, if you are like me, who grew up in the Midwest in a Christian home... Uh, in, amongst white parents, um, my worldview was pretty much colored by the fact that, you know, I understand that the Bible had truth, that Jesus uh, died for me, that there was a created order, that God had called me and destined me to certain activities. That's all part of who I am, a work ethic that comes from a Dutch heritage that very much valued um, working hard and succeeding. So that's all who I am. But if you go to another part of the world and you run into people who are are Hindu and and believe in, in reincarnation and, and that maybe this is not the best life, <laughs> um, that maybe a life in the future would be better, then death is not seen in the same way that we see it. And so, and suffering is viewed as a means of getting a better life, not as, as suffering as we, we experience it. So those definitions have great importance to us, and in, in, in understanding a person's worldview and where they're coming from 
um, makes a huge difference in the way uh, we communicate. And often, you know, I think we've communicated past one another because we're so intent on presenting the gospel that we forget that their worldview may not be as our worldview is. So health and illness is kind of an interesting thing. It grew out, nursing itself grew out of a Christian worldview. Um, as, a, as a profession, you know, when you study nursing history, you learn about Kaiserwerth Germany and how we were deaconesses in the church and we felt that God had called us to care for the sick, injured, and dying. And that's a big part of what we believe about nursing and who we are. Nursing practice in the United States is based on the scientific method and what we understand about illness and disease. We think of things in terms of germ theory, systems theory, evidence-based practice. These are all values that are near and dear to our hearts, and we tend to practice from, from that perspective. However, host cultures may have a different understanding of health and illness. They think illness may be considered normal. Everybody has this disease. You know, if you live in Africa long enough, as I did, uh, diarrhea became a way of life. And it just was, <laughs> you know, it was part of living in Africa. You just periodically had diarrhea and everybody suffered from the disease. And so nobody thought it was bad. And, and there was nothing to do about it. You just lived through it. Malaria, the same sort of thing. People get malaria. They get sick. They take a little bit of medicine. They get better. They don't realize that maybe that should not be that way. Often they attributed disease to a broken relationship. In the early days of AIDS, um, we were told that AIDS was caused by uh, somebody who didn't pay the bride price. Uh, and that's why somebody got sick. And, and, and you know, that's, a, that's a commonly an ancestor was angry with them. Uh, somebody had put a curse on them. Somebody had poisoned them. Those were all reasons for people getting sick. And I didn't, quite honestly, I didn't know what to do with that. How do you, how do you argue against that? My worldview was very, very different. So understanding what the worldview of somebody is, is is important when you go out to missions. This is often um, reflected in scripture. The disciples, when they approached Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his parents who sinned or, or somebody else? And Jesus says it wasn't anything related to that. It was related to the fact that I needed to um, be glorified. And this is the way that God had provided for that. So we don't often don't understand either. And the scripture understands that there are different cultural understandings of illness and disease going to go through this quickly. There's a wonderful book, if you haven't seen it, it's called Ministering Cross-Culturally by Sherwood Lingenfelter and Marvin Mayers. And they talk about six tensions in moving cross-culturally. There's a tension about time, the tension about judgment, the tension in handling crisis, and the tensions over goals, the tensions over self-worth, and the tensions regarding vulnerability. And there's, there's dichotomies in each of these. And neither one or, or, or the other is right. But, you know, there are time-oriented cultures and there are event-oriented cultures. And I think one of the biggest challenges when we move overseas is when we're a very high type A, get things done, uh, very time-oriented, um, it 
it seems terrible that everybody else is moving so slowly and nothing is getting done to us, and it's a very hard adjustment to, to, to make. I remember coming back from Uganda, going through England, and spending a couple weeks in, in the UK and, and waiting for the, the underground tube, and the little man came over the PA system and said, we apologize for the delay, the train will be 30 seconds late. <laughs> I just, I just bust out laughing. I had waited two weeks for the plane to come and get me. <laughs> I thought, 30 seconds late? <laughs> They're apologizing? I have been to the airport for two weeks straight waiting for the plane. I, it just didn't seem real. So tensions, those kinds of tensions are, are part of moving cross-culturally. And I'm not going to take the time here. Um, there's a wonderful little assessment tool that they have developed to put you in a various place so you can determine how much of attention this is going to be for you in the culture. And, and, and Lingenfelter and Mayers were very gracious and allowed me to include that tool in the discussion of that in the book that I wrote for NCF on preparing for missions, moving, uh, carrying across cultures. So I'm just going to go through this. Do you have any questions about that? Cultural tensions, any examples that you all have? Yeah. What would be attention and judgment? Attention and judgment. Uh, attention over goals. Where I'm going here. Um, the tension and judgment is usually the difference between thinking between either or and both and. We tend to think in terms of either or. And often it's a both and. So we say it's either this way or that way. And, 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 and other cultures see things holistically and, and they're very happy to say it can be both ways. Even if it seems like it's antithetical. They're okay with those, those diverse, diverse things. Um, how can I? Paradoxes is the word I'm looking for. You know, it is not a problem for them that Jesus was both man and God, for example. Um, we, we tend to struggle with that as a, as a theology. It's you're either man or you're, you're God, but how can you be both? And that's, a, that's something we struggle with theologically, but maybe in, in other people's minds it's not a problem. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Okay, I want to make sure we have time for things afterwards. I'm so, I apologize for this. I meant to have the short one up here, and I didn't get it. Vulnerability is one of the ones that I think is, is, is critical. Um, and the way we handle confrontation. Um, many, you know, we are a very direct culture. We, if you have a problem with somebody, you go directly to the person and you confront the person and you say, I didn't like, you know, when you did this, I you use our I statements, I didn't feel like that was very good. In many cultures, that is not done. Uh, they will use a third person to do the mediation. You tell somebody else and that person goes and says, you know, it's, it's, it's apart from a direct confrontation. And I almost... I made, almost made the biggest mistake of my whole career about six months into my time in Uganda 
by confronting my colleague about um, a receipt for for uh, an expense she did not have. Ugandan markets do not issue receipts. <laughs> it's very difficult to do accounting for things. You, you know, here in order to get reimbursed, you submit your receipts. That's how we do things. It's a very accountable kind of thing. And I had. She didn't have receipts, and I needed to make accounting. And so I went to her, and I said, you know, where did this money go? Do you have any idea? Can we account for this? And, oh, my goodness, there was silence for, like, it seemed like an eternity. You know, I, I was accusing her of stealing money, and, and that was not what I intended at all. But, you know, if I, what I should have done is gone to another person in the office and say, I'm having a problem. I don't know how to do this accounting for the money and I don't have receipts from Margaret do you think you could help me and and they would have gone to her and said you know Grace needs to account for the money and and she doesn't have the receipts for all of that Margaret what do you, you know how do you account for that and they would come back and 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 do all the intermediary things so vulnerability is and saving face especially in Asian cultures is very very important and and being non-confrontational is 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 one of those things that you have to, to be very careful about. And I think in North America, because we are who we are, and that's the way we were raised, and it's, it's one of those difficult issues that we, we need to address. So those are the kinds of things culturally that can make or break your, your ministry. And if you do, are not paying close attention to a person's culture and the way they handle confrontation, the way they handle... Um, time or the way they, they manage uh, decision-making, uh, attribution. Um, in Uganda, uh, people are attributed worth not by what they have done, but who they are. What, what clan they come from, what family they come from is, is really very important. Your reputation is determined by that. And so, you know, my housekeeper would say to me, if you need to have some help, let me know. I will get you the right person to come work for you. Um, I, I know the people that you can trust. There are people you can trust and that you can't trust, and I will assist you in that. Where we would look at you know, a resume and say, what qualifications do they have? Are they able to do the job? That was not important. It was, you know, can you trust this person? Is this person coming from a reliable uh, family, a reliable clan? So those are are huge, huge differences in approach, and, and we can make big mistakes um, doing that. And, and vice versa, people who come here, um, I think we also need to understand that when, you're, um, when you have friends from another country, maybe they might do something or ask you a question that might, might seem like, you know, how dare you ask me that? We don't ask those questions here, but they're just genuinely interested in who you are, and they're trying to learn, and so it... it, it comes across in, in, in a way that isn't, uh, according to our culture, acceptable. So it goes both both directions. Yeah. Other? I can't begin to, uh, you know, I had no idea. There were so many things that I learned. Africans do not name by their parents. <laughs> um you're given a Christian name, and your mother in the, cult, in the in the tribe that I worked with, in the Lugbara people, they are given a name by their mother. And often the the Ugandan name was something terrible, like you know, um, 
I kept quiet was my, my colleague's apukuru. And, and it was because her mother had been criticized for not having children, uh, and she was uh, firstborn, and, and she kept quiet about all the criticism that people had directed her way. Um, so that was her Ugandan name, and then she had a Christian name, Margaret, and her name was Margaret Apakuru, and then she had married, so her, she had taken on her husband's name. But I couldn't figure out who belonged to whom. I'm Dutch. And we play Dutch bingo all the time with, you know, if there's a, a, a person who has a Dutch name, are you related to so-and-so because your father's name is this? And, and I'm trying to figure out how I might be connected to you. Um, but nobody's name was related to anybody else. And so I couldn't figure out who was, who was a brother to a sister to anybody else by the name. You couldn't use names as a way of figuring out what family people belong to. And that was, I mean, it was one of those things like, well, yeah, you know, why would they name, why, everybody doesn't follow the same way of naming, and this is a cultural thing, so we have to adapt to learn how to identify people with their family members if, if that isn't the way that they name their, their family. In one other tribe, you're named by the day of the week that you're born on, and, and it varies, to, you know, there's... Everybody has one of seven, all boys have one of seven names and all girls have one of seven names depending on what day of the week you were born on. It has nothing to do with your family. Yeah. Do you have anything that you can speak to as far as the reconciliation process? You talked about that conflict that arose between the that. How do you resolve conflict yeah. cross-culturally? Yeah, you know, um, there's a wonderful book that Dwayne Elmer has written on, on, on cross-cultural conflict, and so I can't go into all of it, but um, you just have to understand that because we come from different cultures that we, we do, we often have misunderstandings, and it really means working hard at communication, and often it means taking somebody with you to try to to mediate and try to help understand some of that um, difference is all I can say. Um, it is Conflict is never easy even in our culture, let alone doing it with a, another culture where there's misunderstandings and, and there's just another layer that needs to be addressed when you, you move cross-culturally. And just be aware that that's going to happen. <laughs> it does. I mean, we make cultural faux pas and we're going to have to go back, and I think, you know, being humble and saying, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize um, that was a mistake, and please forgive me. And that's what I did with Margaret. I just said, you know, Margaret, you know, I, I know that there aren't receipts, and, and, and I was coming from my way of thinking, and, you know, we'll have to think of another way of, solving this problem and what do you suggest and you know maybe you can write down on a paper when you buy something in the market how much it cost and what you bought and we'll just take that as as documentation so that was how we handled that you know and she was good I mean she she could write and, and keep track of what she had spent so but she hadn't known that she was supposed to do that that was a mistake on my part you know uh, that was an expectation that I had that was not met often Conflict comes because you have unspoken 
expectations that you think everybody is functioning under and they're not stated and you need to make it clear. Okay. Spiritual care. Nurses Christian Fellowship is known for teaching spiritual care. We've done some of the seminal work in it. Judy Shelley's written a book, Spiritual Care, Caregiver's Guide, and did some of the first work in in nursing process and on how to provide spiritual care. So we have a a long history of doing that, and and I'm very much convinced that God really cares not only about people's bodies and that we should provide excellent nursing care, but that he also cares for their souls. Um, one of the first spiritual needs that people have is their personal relationship with God. And, and it was interesting to hear um, Chuck speak last night about, you know, talking about God. And, and, and we're hearing a lot about you just need to present God as the creator of the universe. And, and talking about having a personal relationship with God, that is foundational. And I find that when I, t- when I try to meet this need, it's very important to assess how does a person view God? How do they understand God? As he said, um, uh, as Brother, um, what's his name? Dan spoke today. The Muslim view of God and our view of God is very different. And, and, and looking at how do you see God, is God the creator of the universe who sent his son to die for you as a caring, loving God? Or do you see God as a punitive God? Um, or is there many gods? There isn't just one God. Um, in in, in, in um, animism, there are many gods. The God of the trees, the God of the earth, the God of the sun. Um, all those gods you have to keep happy. <laughs> Your ancestors you have to keep, Cappy. So how do they understand God, and, and what, what does that look like? I work with a lot of um, – my, my specialty was women's health. So I work with a lot of uh, women uh, who have been abused and, or who have been raped. And, and their understanding of God, when you talk about God the Father, is often colored by an abuser – or something else. They can't wrap their arms around the fact that God is understood as a father. Um, They have not had a good earthly father, so they don't know how to relate to God as father. And we have to talk that through. How do you see God? Um, I think uh, how we understand God is is a key thing. And then, how do you understand yourself as man or woman? are we created in God's image? Do we have value and worth because of that? Uh, are, are, is it something that, um, or do you feel like you were the worthless creature on the earth? You, there's no way that anything, you, you could never do any good. Sometimes when you work among the poor and underserved, they feel like they are unworthy of anything because they must have done something and there's no way redeeming it and it's just a terrible place to be. So how do I see myself? Um, sometimes I think uh, we are a little too hard on ourselves, and sometimes I think we're not hard enough on ourselves. We don't acknowledge that we are sinful creatures and in need of redemption. So assessing where, how do, they, how do you see yourself? How do you fit into this picture? And then what do you believe about Jesus? Is he truly the Son of God who was sent to redeem you? Or is he just a good prophet? 
or is he a historical figure? Um, how do you see Jesus? And talking about that. And then putting all of that together into a message about how you can have a personal relationship with God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Another spiritual need that we all have is meaning and purpose in life. We all want to know, why are we here? What does does God have planned for us? It's one of the reasons maybe some of you came to this conference. Um, Often we find ourselves in, in a crisis Um, There are developmental crises that happen. Uh, You get married and your identity changes, and and, and that's that's okay. It's a good thing. But now you have to find a new direction, new meaning, new purpose in your life. Is it to procreate and have children and and build a family? Um, That gives you meaning and purpose. Maybe um, you've lost a, a, a parent and now you are an orphan. That changes who you are, and, and, and as I'm dealing with an elderly parent, I'm realizing that that has implications. So there are meaning and purpose is it's something that I think every person in the world seeks to find. And often it is reflected in the question, why? Whenever I hear the question, why, my little, ear, my little antenna goes up, and, and I say, that person is really seeking to find meaning and purpose in some way. And then how can we as Christians help them find meaning and purpose in their lives? Um, so that's, that's one way. Um, another need that spiritual care uh, that everybody has is the need for love and belonging. We all want to feel loved and that we belong to somebody and are cared for. But we often experience love in terms of conditional love. If you do this for me, I will do that for you. And to understand that God's love is unconditional is sometimes hard to wrap your little mind around. I was working with a little black church in um, Gary, Indiana, and had written some lesson plans about this. And they had a, a clothing ministry, and they had a food ministry, and they had people coming to get those kinds of assistance because it's a very poor area of the country. And unlike many ministries, they did not ask any questions of people, like what is your income level, why do you need this, or justify it. They just, out of love, gave things to people. And they knew that people abused the system. Um, And they were okay with that because they said God had told them to love people and give them what they they stood in need of. And that then was their responsibility to God to use it properly. So they had this one lady who they knew was abusing the system. And she was coming and they were talking about God's unconditional love and how there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you more. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you less. And because this woman had experienced unconditional love from this church, she said, I want to know that God. I want to know that God. So demonstrating unconditional love for people um, who have never experienced conditional, unconditional love is a w- very important spiritual need, and we all need to have it. Often... The need for love and belonging is experienced in, in uh, expressed in terms of fear. I'm afraid of what people are going to say about me. I'm afraid I might not belong. Are common 
things that I hear. Whenever I hear something about fear, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, I'm not sure what's going to happen. This is very fearful people. I, I understand that they're very concerned about where do they fit and how do they belong. And, and the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, that you can become the person God created you to be if you understand that you are loved unconditionally by God. And so uh, meeting that need is, and listening for it is important. And above all, the need for forgiveness. First of all, we need forgiveness for the things that we have actually done and sinned, and, and, and we need to ask God to forgive us for those things. But there's a lot of people who feel that they have done something wrong, and really they haven't. You know, society has placed an expectation on them that is not true. It's an un, unrealistic expectation. I should do this. I ought to do that. And, and because I haven't done it, I have somehow need to be forgiven for not doing what I, I should have done. And that's, that's probably, I call that the shoulda, woulda, coulda. And, and, and that is not something that you need to be forgiven of. So we need to distinguish between true forgiveness and, and, and false forgiveness and false guilt. Uh, true guilt and false guilt, so that we get that that sorted out. But once you're forgiven of something that you have done wrong, then you also have to not only be forgiven by God, but you have to be forgiven by yourself. And oftentimes that is the harder piece of forgiveness. We keep taking things back off of the altar that we have given to God, and he has said it's for buried in the sea of forgetfulness, but we take it back and we keep, and Satan likes to bring it up to us as well. So forgiving ourselves is an important piece. And again, you know, um, working with AIDS patients, this is huge, you know. Um, I should have done this and and I I did that wrong. And yes, I believe God forgive me, but I'm still paying the consequence and I have a hard time forgiving myself. And if possible, it would be great if you could be forgiven by the person that you have wronged, if you have wronged somebody, or if if somebody has wronged you, that you forgive them. It's a powerful, powerful act. And and as we move forward, and I keep listening on television shows, you know, people who have had a murder in their, their family or in their acquaintance. When I was teaching, I was part of a Bible study in, in Oak Park, Illinois, and one of our members was a chaplain in in the Cook County Jail. And so he used to take inmates as they were released and he ran a halfway house and he would bring them to our Bible study. And and we were very welcoming of of folks we believe that we are supposed to minister to the prisoners. And so we did. And then one day um, I got word from my fellow Bible study members that uh, the roommate of one of my dear friends had been murdered by one of the inmates who had been released, who had been to our Bible study. And, and we, we thought we were doing right. We thought we were following God. Why did God leave that out? That's meaning and purpose. And for a long time... Ultimately, he was prosecuted and sent to jail, and and we lived through that. It was the front page in the Chicago Tribune for a number of days, and our Bible study was under scrutiny for for what we had done. Um, 
But we had to say, you know, God is still on the throne. He is still sovereign. He is still good. What we had done was good intentioned. We were rightfully motivated. About 10 years later, the brother of the girl who was murdered was attending a um, high school reunion with my friend who was her roommate. And he said to her that he had worked it through with God and and he had forgiven, he was mad at us, he had forgiven us, he had forgiven God, I mean, God had said, you know, it was okay, he had forgiven the man who had even done it. And he said, is there anyone else in your group that needs to know that I am okay and that we, we have forgiven? And she said, the chaplain has been carrying this around for 10 years and needs to be forgiven. So they got together and they reconciled. Such a warm, wonderful thing to happen. And and so forgiveness is a very healing thing. And often, a lot of the illness that we see, friends, is really rooted in this lack of forgiveness. We carry grudges around, we carry burdens around that we don't really need to carry around. And, and, and that is expressed Physically, And if we don't get to the root of the problems, if we don't address spiritual care, we're only putting Band-Aids on wounds. We're not treating the real, real issue. So spiritual care for me is a huge, huge thing that I hadn't been taught in nursing school, but I feel very strongly that as missionary nurses, we need to be really prepared to do. Any questions about spiritual care? The root of forgiveness. The unforgiveness. You know, it's, it, it it takes a lot of practice and a lot of thing, a lot of um, just listening carefully to people um, and asking questions about what what happened and and what was there and how do they feel about it and it, you know is that reality and and how have you handled that and. And have you forgiven that person? Ultimately getting to that um, helps. Yeah. Um, But I I don't know that uh, other than listening carefully for for little clues, uh, you know, I'll never forgive that person or I can't can't deal with, I, I don't want to have any contact with that person. Well, why? What happened in your relationship that that is such a broken area? Um, revenge, you know, people who go for revenge. That per, you, you see it all the time, don't you? I mean, I think of the wars and things that we have. Uh, I remember um, Northern Ireland, you know, well, that, brother, that person killed my brother, so now I'm going to go kill him. We see it in gang wars, you know. Uh, this revenge. Well, why are we killing each other? What What's the point of this? Where are we going to end up? Uh, uh, Steve Saint is here. Um, I, in the past, uh, he has talked about the Wadani and how they were just revengeful people. They were just killing each other. If, if they hadn't gone in, 
they would, if they, the Wadani have told him that they, they would no longer be a people group because they would have just killed each other off. Um, they had no idea that that revenge was and that hatred for people was, was so destructive. So I think we see it all around us that this destructiveness of that and the lack of forgiveness causes so much of, of our, our, our problems. And because of that, then you see hypertension. I'm angry. Um, you see ulcers. You see ulcerative colitis. You see all of those things that come from stress-related illness. A lot of stress might be attributed to a lack of forgiveness. I, either they haven't forgiven themselves for something or they haven't forgiven somebody else or they don't feel forgiven by God. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I've seen you here several times now. You know, you're really young. You have a lot of complaints. Is there something else going on in your life? Uh Uh-huh. And that'll just kind of open Great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. That's a good example when you see repeaters. And, and it, the wonderful thing about nursing, the thing I love about nursing, is that we're not generally like the medical profession where we only have 15-minute window with a person. You know, often we get to spend long periods of time, at least sometimes an eight-hour shift. And, and so you can come back and, and you can revisit a conversation earlier after you've had time, some time to think about it. So... Um, there's wonderful benefits to, to being in nursing and, and being able to care for people in that way. What have you all been taught about spiritual care? I w- I'd like to know a little. What have, have you been taught how to provide spiritual care? She prays with people. <coughs> Any other things that you found? Yeah. a good point um and and how do you know when it's appropriate to pray and how do you know when it's appropriate not to and how do you document that um one of the things i always say is that we need to be concerned about the person that we're caring for it's not a matter of our need to pray or present the gospel of jesus whose need are we meeting are we meeting the need of the person that we're caring for is one of the key questions you have to ask yourself And then if you have identified that the person has a spiritual need, then you need to say, you know, what is that spiritual need? And you can document it. Um, There there used to be, I'm sorry, I'm not up on the latest nursing diagnoses, but there used to be one called spiritual distress. Is there still one called spiritual distress? So you can document that you have identified a spiritual distress in this person. And therefore... um, Maybe they have a, a, you know, the spiritual distress of, of feeling unforgiven or not feeling like they belong. And, and therefore you are addressing that need by 
asking that person if prayer would help or or if the reading a scripture would help or perhaps um, calling the clergy to, for further things. I mean, there's there's valid things that other things that you can do, but you do need to document what your assessment was and why you believe that that was a problem and how you're going to address it. I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that JCO requires that we do a spiritual assessment and that um, it is expected that spiritual care will be provided. So you're not doing anything outside the bounds of what uh, is, is an expectation here. Yeah. Your behavior, your behavior connotes. Absolutely. And I have had, I have offered to pray with patients and they have refused. And that's fine. I pray for them silently. They never need to know. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there, you can pray with people or you can pray, you know, just for them quietly in your own private personal devotions. Mm-hmm. caring for somebody, understanding where they're coming from culturally. And then, you know, one of the key things is you cannot provide good spiritual care if you yourself have not had your spiritual needs met. So if you, have, if you are struggling spiritually, if you have not spent time in the word with the Lord, if you have not been praying, then, you know, you need to get that right first because you need to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit and know his voice before you try to reach out and provide that care to somebody else. So listening carefully and getting in tune with God first before you, you, you try to reach out and do that, I think is really, really key. So thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely interesting to find that those who are not Christians find it very, very difficult to even go there. They have no idea how to even begin it. And so that opens the door for you to talk about what spirituality is, you know, what spiritual beliefs mm-hmm. are, and, mm-hmm. and you get to present it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that what's your meaning and purpose of life is one of the questions that they can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
also teaching spiritual assessment and helping students work through um, some of these spiritual needs is an open door for helping students to understand their own spirituality and then how to provide for for patients. I'm repeating so that it gets recorded. so yeah, I, all those things, and that's why, for for me, I, I that's a piece of nursing that is unique to nursing. Again, uh, because we come out of the church and out of the movement of the church, we we have that at the core of our our profession. It might have gotten lost along the way, but I think we need to reclaim it and and and, and become skilled in it. And especially if you're working overseas or you're working in a mission setting. Um, having your ears tuned and being willing to um, share the gospel um, either through scripture or through prayer or uh, through the church of Jesus Christ, just loving people as the church in Gary, Indiana did. They just loved people. Um, And then when they were asked about it, they could give an accounting for it. So that kind of activity, being the best possible nurse that you can be, giving quality care, going a little beyond the normal. Um, You know, I I, I was with you. Um, Often when I was nursing, uh, staff nursing, people would just say to me, you're just different. Why do you care about whether my hair gets washed or, you know, some of those little extra things that we can do for nurses. And I loved women's health because, you know, women, when they start getting better, they want to put on makeup and they get, you know, those nice nighties out and they, they take care of themselves. And it's, you can just tell when somebody's feeling better and it's just fun to help them feel better about themselves and get that, that all sorted out. And, and, and it was just fun to, you know, say, okay, can I help you wash your hair today? And they, nobody's ever asked that, you know. <laughs> so um, it, it, carrying that extra little bit and doing the little bit extra is sometimes a way that you can communicate God's love and then open the door. Okay, spiritual care. Um, the last thing, I, and I'm not going to whiz through here, but the last thing is how to teach. I hate this kind of setup. I am much more comfortable standing underneath a mango tree with a bunch of village women and presenting a problem uh, to them and then asking them questions about it. So I'm going to, if I don't trip myself up here. One of the things we used to do in Uganda when we were teaching village health workers was we had a we had a Bagandan princess who was one of our trainers, and she would do this little skit. She would take a hoe, and I don't have a hoe, so pretend I have a hoe, and she would put it over her shoulder, and she'd go like, ask questions. <laughs> what did you see? And the Ugandans would answer, we saw a lady going out to the banana uh, patch, the banana, they, bananas was their staple food, the banana plantation, and, and doing her business. Okay. Um, what was happening? Well, she took a hoe and she tried to cover up her, her business. 
Does that happen in our community? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. Everybody does that. Really? Give me an example. Well, my neighbor, you know, they don't have a latrine, so that's what they do. They go out to the banana plant. Sometimes they use their plantation. Sometimes they use mine. Okay, why do we do that? Well, they don't have latrines. Well, why don't you have a latrine? Oh, well, because you get infertile if you use a latrine. Infertile? Yeah, you lose, the women lose their eggs down the hole, and that's why they don't have babies. opens up why getting at that values and beliefs, what their worldview is, why people don't use latrines was because you were going to get infertile. And doggone it, you know, I was a single woman. I used latrines and I didn't have children. (laughs) And my colleague who had been married used latrines, and she didn't have children. She, her husband was killed in an auto crash early in their marriage. <coughs> so, of course, that's why we were infertile. You know, we did not have children, and we were living examples of their belief. <laughs> so much of what we teach has absolutely no meaning if we don't get to what people understand and believe about what it is. So all the health education that you do, (coughs) you can have all the wonderful little charts and flip charts and everything that you have. You can give the message, and and they will hear you. They will listen attentively. They will say, yes, yes, we all need to have latrines. (coughs) We will build latrines, but we're not going to use them. The way we teach is as important as what we teach. And if I get and get any other message across to you, that is one that I want to get across. Because so many people say all we need to do is health education. If we were so successful at health education, <coughs> we would not be in the place that we are. I mean, I, I'm overweight. You know? I admit it. If I <laughs> really believe that I would be better, healthier, or whatever, I would be doing something about it. But <coughs> part of it is the difficulty and, and where I live and the exercise and making time for it and doing all the other stuff. <coughs> I know everything I need to know to lose weight. It is not a matter of lack of education. I taught nutrition. <laughs> I know that I'm not supposed to eat so much, and I know all the different diets that there are out there. I know how to count calories. I'm still overweight. (coughs) Why is that? Because I don't value it. And there's a lot of things about that. I remember, you know how old I am. I have a lot of gray hair. Back when I was in high school, it was real chic to smoke. And they had all these anti-smoking campaigns. And they used to come to school and they would show you the lungs of people who smoked. 
and they would say how bad it was and look at these awful lungs, they're all black and there's tar and nicotine and that was supposed to motivate us from not smoking. And people continued to smoke, didn't do anything. So then they had another campaign about 10 years later and uh, they had pictures of people kissing ashtrays and they said kissing a, a smoker is like kissing an ashtray and it was the yuck factor <laughs> trying to get people to say it was disgusting don't worry about your health it's just disgusting it's a disgusting habit that was trying to get at some of the attitudes and beliefs of, that people had about smoking <coughs> much more effective many people just that I don't like to do that I don't want to do it anymore and then, of course, there was a societal pressure when we learned about secondhand smoking. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm warm. The distance between heaven and hell is the distance between your head and your heart. You can know everything you need to know about God and Jesus and the whole thing. You can be intellectual about it. But if you don't value it, if you don't believe it, it's not going to make any difference in your life. So when you're teaching health education and you're trying to get people to change behavior, you need to get at what do they believe and what do they value and working from that base to try to change behavior. So the method is as important as the message. And there's some great programs. Um, Stan Rowland is around. Those of you have, maybe you've heard of the CHE program that came out of Uganda. Some of the work that we did in there, um, chaining, teaching people problem-posing methods and, and using adult education so that they own the message and are willing to do something about it and actually act on that belief and that new belief and new behavior. Questions about that? Che, it's called Community Health Evangelism. LifeWind is the organization that's sort of heading it. Stan Rowland has started another organization called Che Network for people around the world who are using this. It's a, been a very effective tool in training health workers and um, community health workers getting people to work in their own villages to, to present health messages in an effective way. <coughs> Have you heard of that? Anybody else? Yeah, yeah I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, it's called Community Health Evangelism, and it's abbreviated. They call it CHE because it's that Community C Health H E Evangelism, CHE. <laughs> Not Che Rivera, Guevara, the Latin American guy, but the um, community health evangelism. You know how we, we in health and medicine, we have an acronym thing for everything, and I can't keep up with all of them. But um, there's another uh, similar kind of thing called transformational health. Uh, there's some books that have been written about that and, and working on 
people's attitudes and beliefs and under, getting to the stories, using story to, to uh, illustrate and, 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 and introduce topics so that you, people own the message. The big thing is, is that people have to own the, the message. They have to know and, and act on it. And then we can know a lot of things in our heads, but we're not going to do anything about it. So, yeah. So those are three things that I wish I had learned in nursing school that nobody taught me. And if you're thinking of going onto the mission field, you may want to explore more in these areas so that you get better equipped and better prepared. Definitely learn about the culture to where you're going. Um, learn about how to provide spiritual care and have a strong biblical faith and basis for, for what you believe and um, be ready to meet spiritual needs of people and then um, how to teach others. Yeah? This might be, this was new to me, but it might be commonplace to everybody else. But last year, one of my friends really challenged me into a new way of thinking. And, for instance, we were talking about praying with your patients and how you can be sitting there thinking, well, you know, what if they turn me, what if I ask them, what if they turn me down? What if my nursing instructor gets upset? What if they're battling implications to it? But if you think instead, what's going to happen to that person if I don't? Yeah. Then it changes everything. Uh-huh. It's just like, you know, when you're, even when you're reaching out in everyday life. Yeah. Like, well, what's going to happen if I do that? Well, what's going to happen if you don't? If you don't. And, you know, that's, that's a great question for, for spiritual care, but it's also a good question in terms of uh, poverty issues, I think. You know, if, 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 uh, if I don't address this, what will happen? And it really helps sort out what is important and what isn't in, in life. It's very difficult to meet everybody's needs. When you get overseas, there's such overwhelming needs, and you're always going to be asked to to meet needs that you are unable to do. If, if, I, if I try to address this, what, what will happen? And if I don't address it, what will happen? Is this, gonna, is this a life and death issue? Or is this something that maybe I can refer to something else or do something else about? <coughs> but definitely um, don't be afraid to step out. If I heard anything from Brother Daniel this morning, it was don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, Satan has us bound up in fear, and 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 we should not be ashamed of the gospel. It is it is life giving. It is truth, and we have and we have been privileged to be have received it, and we have a responsibility to to give it to others. I remember when I graduated from Wheaton College. Um, one of the most life-impacting things was my baccalaureate address when uh, the president of the college said, tomorrow we will grant you all the rights and responsibilities of, uh, all the rights and, I forgot, privileges of your degree. He said, but I want you also to know as a Christian you have a responsibility. You have been privileged to study at this institution, and we have been privileged you have been privileged to have been granted this credential. You now have a responsibility to use it. And you are among the most privileged people in the world. And you have a responsibility to God to use that privilege well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for those who have come here who 
are desiring to serve you, um, especially those who are involved in the nursing profession. Lord, we thank you for calling us to caring for others, um, to be Christ to others, and to see them as you um, that we care for, that when we care for others, we are caring really for you. And help us always to keep that in the forefront, that we are, are your ambassadors and that we are um, privileged to to be your hands and feet in the world, to care for others. So I pray that you would bless the people here and that you would continue to give us the courage and the strength that we need to continue to serve you as long as you give us life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.